This podcast was produced and recorded in the studios of Cairns FM 89.1. This is the evolution of intimacy with Ella Shannon. A show about sex, relationships and everything in between. You can start to feel bliss while you're vacuuming. I don't know if I've tried that or not. Do I want to try it? What is it? Very complex, very interesting. Flogging, whipping, caning. So there I was in my high heels and my little dress. So it is purely a stigma. Healthy sexual expression with other humans. I went to the local women's health centre and went, I think I'm a lesbian, is there a support group? They don't know quite how to talk about it. It's actually a core skill in relationships. That has always worked for me. Silva Neves is an accredited UK psychotherapist specialising in sexology, relationships and trauma. He is a course director for the Contemporary Institute of Clinical Sexology, an international speaker and an editorial board member of the leading journal Sex and Relationship Therapy. He's also a wonderful author. Welcome, Silva. Thank you for inviting me. Silva, one of the things I'm really eager to hear you talk about and get your insight on is porn addiction. I have so many people coming to me saying I've got a sex addiction or their partner brings them along and says they've got a sex addiction. And I understand that you don't necessarily think about things in that way. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, yes, it's uh, the the word sex addiction and porn addiction are very popular words. Uh, many people use it. The public use it a lot. The media use it a lot, and therapists also use it a lot. And the thing is that um, there isn't really any evidence that it exists uh, in a clinical sense. So there's been a lot of research about it for many many years, and there's just not been any any evidence that it exists. The word addiction in general, anyway, is a word that's been overly used and misused quite a lot of the time. I'm pretty sure that you have heard people saying, I'm a chocolate addict, I'm a Mm. shopping addict, I'm a Netflix addict, whatever. And and those words are, the the word addiction has become part of the popular language, so it's very easy for people to talk about it in that way. But addiction, um, really, originally, is a word that is an illness, and it is uh, has some very specific criteria that people have to meet clinically in order to be diagnosed with an addiction. And um, that, uh, it, when it comes to sex and porn use, those criteria have never been met clinically. We've never seen them, or some of them, but not the full the full criteria to be able to endorse that sex or porn can be addictive or can be part of, part of the addiction place. Mm. The reason why I speak up a lot about it is because when you start to use a word that is associated with illness, then it can really shame people. When when that word is being misused for sexual behaviors, and people then start to think, oh, if I'm doing too much of it, it must mean I've got an illness, and the illness is called sex addiction or porn addiction, then then people feel a lot of shame about it. Mm. And it's very easy to feel a lot of shame about sex or porn use because out there anyway, there's so many sex myths that most people are already a bit shamed about their sexual behaviors anyway. Yeah. So I think it makes it, as soon as people start to identify with an illness word like addiction, it can be, it can be really uh, not helpful at all. I and mean, in fact, it can be less helpful than just thinking about it in a different way. 
Now, uh, the word addiction or sex addiction, we have to also remember that it was invented in the 80s, early 80s, and it was at the time where there was the AIDS epidemic. Huh. So everybody, everybody was afraid of sex at that time. And there was a resurgence in the values of monogamy and even in the values of sexual abstinence because of the AIDS epidemic. Mm. So that word, sex addiction, took off at that time because, because it was really speaking to the fear of people. And the thing is that word since the 80s has really stuck around in people's minds and people have been using it decades and decades later. But over all that time, it's just never been really proven uh, scientifically, despite so many research around it. Mm. And, the research, and the research that promotes sex addiction, unfortunately, they have been shown to be having poor methodologies because, unfortunately, those research have been done with moral bias. So even the research is very, very poor in that area. Right. So, but, but, but we do have now, especially over the last 10 years, a lot of research that are not uh, biased with the addiction thinking, but that are from the field of sexology. And that has really shown up a lot of very interesting data because it really showed up that actually from the sexology point of view, sexology, which is the study of human sexuality and intimate relationships, that the addiction, that illness, addiction, is not simply not seen mm. clinically. So then we were left with, okay, so if it's not sex addiction, if it's not porn addiction, then what it is, because there are so many people who are complaining about the sexual behavior. Yeah, and but, suffering, uh, isn't it? And partners that are suffering, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You are listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with me, Ella Shannon, a show about sex, relationships, and everything in between. Most of us have not been encouraged or taught how to talk about sex. They are curious. Hang on a sec. I'm a woman. Like, I have needs now. Whole new level of sensation and pleasure. I looked at my yoni before and after and I was like, oh my God. You may experience a range of emotions. What we associate as being related to one gender or another, it changes all the time. Pleasure is our birthright. You're on these massive doses of steroids. I look like Bert Newton. I wouldn't have been attracted to myself. <laughs> so they were just so happy to know that A, they weren't alone, and B, that this was like a legitimate thing. And that actually sounds really lovely and erotic, really pleasurable. It's a secret. Mind blowing. So it's only in 2018 that the World Health Organization came up with some a new way of looking at it, and they call it compulsive sexual behavior. And they make it very clear in those criteria diagnostics that it is not an addiction pathology. It is not an addiction problem. It is a impulse control issue. Uh-huh. And um, so what it means is that it is not about how many times you do it, it is not about um, needing abstinence to, to, as a treatment because those are the typical addiction one. It says it's the relationship between impulse control, so the urges that we feel, and how we respond to them. Mm. To be compulsive, it has to be repetitive, obviously, but it is really about the relationship between the urge and the behavior. 
Uh-huh. And and the the World Health Organization came up with quite a lot of criteria. That's not the that's not the main criteria, but it's, it's quite a few criteria. And and rightly so, the criteria are quite strict. So what it means is that it's actually very very hard for somebody to meet all the criteria to be diagnosed with the disorder. Mm-hmm. But most of the people who have sexual problems uh, that are repetitive will be maybe meeting one or two or maybe three of those criteria. And what it means is that they won't have the disorder, but they will have sexual behavior problems or maybe sexual behavior problems with some compulsive traits, but definitely not the disorder. And the reason why I'm very strong about this is because it's so important that we don't name a disorder when there isn't any because it's really harmful for people to believe they have an illness when they don't have one. True, because on one hand there's the shame that comes with that, but then on the other side of the coin there's, well, I've got an illness, there's nothing I can actually do about that. It's quite disempowering, wouldn't it? Very disempowering, yes. And you hear a lot of people say, oh, well, I keep doing all these things, but it's not my fault because it's my illness, and that's just really not helpful for Mm -hmm. anybody, really. So this is really, in a nutshell, where we are at with, mm. with this. When people come and come and you know, I check the criteria, asking multiple questions, several questions, and then I you know tell people, well, you know, yes, there is definitely a sexual behavior problem, but it is not an addiction, it is not a disorder of compulsivity. So let's just look at what is the actual problem. Yeah. Why is this problem here? And my uh, mindset certainly works any maladaptive behaviors that we have, whether it's uh, binge eating or sexual behaviors, that it is there because it's there to meet a need. There's somehow it fits with something, and otherwise it wouldn't be here. Mm. And so I try to look at what is the function of this maladaptive behavior. Yeah, it's a lovely and attitude. So really, yeah. Yes, and so basically thinking about uh, if the sexual behaviors that people come with, with complain about is actually a symptom, then what is the underlying issue here? Mm. In all of my clients, the compulsive sexual behavior was never the problem in itself. Mm. That was just showing up as trying to resolve or trying to soothe another disturbance. Wow. And a lot of the time, it is trying to soothe the ongoing discomfort of post-trauma stress Mm. if people had you know some issues in their childhood or some unresolved trauma in their childhood they have some negative unpleasant feelings sometimes in their bodies or sometimes psychologically that is as a result of unresolved trauma so then soothing that with sexual behaviors is one way that people manage their trauma sure it works it feels nice it works in the short term absolutely well yes exactly and, you know, with sexual behaviors and with, with orgasms, we get a lot of very good, feel-good chemicals mm. that are released from the brain, and so that can counter, counter trauma in some ways. Mm. But, of course, if the trauma is unresolved, it means that uh, the sexual behavior that we need to do to soothe those post-trauma stress has to be repetitive as well. And that's why people then think, well, it's compulsive because I need it all the time. Uh-huh. But it's not, that, it's not that they need sex all the time. What it is is that they need soothing all the time mm. so that's really kind of like one of the main client groups that that i have is people who have unresolved trauma some people don't even realize that they have been living with it all the time because they are 
so focused on the sexual behavior rather than anything else that might be going on. True, and people often think trauma has to be like war or really extreme neglect mm-hmm. or abuse, and it's not necessarily the it's case. It's unintegrated no. things that happen to us, isn't it, as humans? Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, if it's something that, uh, from childhood, you know, as children, we're vulnerable. So pretty much anything that happens to us, even things that are not considered like a big accident or, or whatever, could be classified as a trauma. Yes. A parent who had to work all the time and could not be emotionally present is enough yeah. to be a disturbance that is ongoing mm-hmm. for the person. So there are also anything else that is representing or that can create an ongoing stress. So ongoing stress, I mean by that, is a high stress that people feel every day mm. or most days. And so if it's not trauma, it could be pretty much any other things in life. Uh, I've had clients that were saying to me that they really struggle with toxic relationships with the family or the family-in-law. And that can be enough of an ongoing trauma that would require sexual behaviors or porn use to soothe on a regular basis. You are listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with me, Alice Shannon, a show about sex, relationships, and everything in between. Most of us have not been encouraged or taught how to talk about sex. They are curious. Hang on a sec. I'm a woman. Like, I have needs now. Whole new level of sensation and pleasure. I looked at my yoni before and after and mm. I was like, oh my God. You may experience a range of emotions. What we associate as being related to one gender or another, it changes all the time. Pleasure is our birthright. You're on these massive doses of steroids. I look like Bert Newton. I wouldn't have been <laughs> attracted to myself. <laughs> So they were just so happy to know that, A, they weren't alone, and B, that this was like a legitimate thing. And that actually sounds really lovely and erotic, really pleasurable. It's a secret. Mind-blowing. More people, more people now have um, ongoing stress of financial stress. Yeah. So can you imagine if, we, if you wake up every day not knowing if you can pay all your bills or if you can pay food for the rest of for the, for the whole month and you just have that in your mind all the time for so the moment you wake up, the moment you go to bed, that would make sense that people could soothe that ongoing stress with porn use. A lot of people have terrible jobs. They hate their jobs. Mm. They have awful bosses where they are uh, demanding them to always be on emails or always productive being productive, 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 pushing people to work harder and harder all the time, that can be enough of a chronic stress for compulsive sexual behaviors to be a soother. There's a lot of different things, really. Absolutely. And when people come with these types of behaviors, just like they might come with using alcohol or using social media to soothe themselves and to manage stress and overwork. Is it about giving them healthier ways to self-soothe? Are there different options that aren't so compulsive that people can use? What would be the pathway? Certainly. I think the difference between people using alcohol, for example, is that alcohol does, it is an external substance. Mm. And so that can definitely create some issues that could be more towards the addiction place. Yeah. 
with sex because it's all natural, meaning that all the chemicals that get released when we have sex are designed by the brain to be sustainable mm. by the brain, by our own brain. It means that we don't, we can't really get addicted. I mean, I know there's a lot of people say well, you, you, can addict, you can get addicted to your own dopamine or whatever. That's not true, really. Mm. Um, we can't really get addicted to our own chemicals because the brain doesn't have to change in order to sustain those okay. chemicals. Okay, so it's just the repetitive behavior that is the issue because it becomes compulsive and you're using your time to do that rather than do more yes. meaningful activities. Yes, exactly. And the soother that you get with, from alcohol is one track soother. What, mm. what I mean by one track is that it does one purpose, which is to numb the feelings. With sex, it's a bit different because people who are looking for sex or porn to soothe, there are two elements to it. One is the thrill of it because it is pleasurable and because sometimes it's very exciting to go on a hookup app and looking at who's around and who's available, yeah. or sometimes it's exciting to think, oh, I'm going to have this private time with them myself and I can just watch anything I want on phone and have some really good quality time masturbation. So that is a thrill. Mm. So there's an excitement to it. It's not just about numbing, it's also about being excited about something. Yeah. And then the compulsivity, the sort of repetitive thing, is the bit that is about moving away from the unpleasant ongoing stress so you move away from the unpleasant ongoing stress but you're also going towards excitement and thrill mm -hmm. aha yeah. yeah so that's the difference not just numbing it's taking you towards something that is yes. pleasurable is exciting is naughty is all those absolutely. different things that come with sex yeah absolutely and the, and the really crucial bit here is that part of people who choose sex to soothe the ongoing stress compared to alcohol, for example, are because they're not only wanting to move away from the emotions, they're also wanting to feel alive. Mm. Yeah. They want to have a connection with themselves. They want to have a connection with the erotic. Sometimes they want to have a connection with other human beings, but they want to have this connection because it's part of feeling alive. Yeah. So a lot of the ongoing stress of the feeling is often because they are feeling disconnected they are feeling they have maybe even an existential crisis of being lost in this world not knowing who they are not knowing what is meaningful in their lives and they are feeling kind of not alive i mean that's pretty understandable in this day and age isn't it we're all a bit floating yeah. around yeah <laughs> yes that's right that's right so the, the treatment, as you're saying, uh, yes, first of all, is definitely to help people have different emotional regulations. But first, to, to notice. Notice what's going on in your body. Notice what's going on in your mind. And when you have this kind of ongoing stress, once you start to pick up or you start to detect the ongoing stress, what could you do to soothe that stress that is not just the one thing? Porn use or sexual behaviors can be one. You don't want to take that away. It's important not to take, to take it away from clients because if it's the only way of managing ongoing stress, you don't want to take that away. Okay, so I just want to pause them. you there because that's such yeah. a big one, I think, that comes up for people. They Perhaps a partner finds out how much porn use is happening and they want to really stop them doing that. And people say, I want to do this dopamine detox. I want to stop using pornography. But you're saying that's maybe not the best advice? That's all right, absolutely. Mm. I don't think it's the best advice because if you stop straight away, you're taking, you're taking away the one resource that people have yeah. to manage to manage the chronic stress. And often when people go for those detox or they go for abstinence things, what, what shows up is that people feel a lot worse. Some go into deep depression. 
some people have post-trauma stress symptoms resurfacing much stronger. And when they start to say, oh, well, I feel, I feel really, really bad about them myself, it's packaged as, well, just a withdrawal mm. um, ah. thing. And so that's normal. You've got to get through it. It's a withdrawal thing. And it is not true. What it is is that we are making people worse by doing ah. that. So it's really the emergence of the trauma, but there hasn't been anything put in place to really heal or process or integrate that and not either other things that can help people soothe or manage that stress. very much disagree with those mm. things of needing to stop straight away. But of course, if people are doing uh, too much sexual behaviors or too much porn use in a way that is uh, getting away of the rest of their life functioning, they can certainly do something with it, but not straight away. First, mm. they need to have extra many, you know, five, six, seven, eight different other ways to soothe their unpleasant emotions or to soothe their mm. ongoing stress. Mm. And that can take some time because mm. people have to find out what it is. Of course, the therapist can help, but it's also about practicing and really embedding it as of a self-care practice. Mm, it sounds really supportive and, then, and really non-shaming. I really like that yeah. approach. Yeah. And then over time, once they have so many other resources, then they can choose what they want to do with their porn use or their sexual behaviors. Mm. And I think a lot of the time it's not necessarily the person's behavior, but it's their partner's reaction to it. And perhaps they haven't mm. been really investing in partnered sexual interactions or in the relationship. And there's a lot of hurt there that needs to be worked through for the couple. Of course, there's a lot of hurt because if, if the partner that has compulsive sexual behavior has cheated on their partner, of course, their partner are going to be sad, hurt, heartbroken, angry. So there's going to have to be some place as well to be able to repair the relationship. But it's really important to repair the relationship, not on the frame of I have a disease mm. and it's not my fault because that definitely doesn't help partners. Yeah. You know, but it's more it's more about oh I've been I've been really struggling with my ongoing stress and I am trying to find other ways to soothe myself and yes I've done I've done all this stuff you know they have to own the fact that they've done they've breached the the boundaries of the relationship they have to own it honestly but also making a commitment they are going to work on themselves yeah and I think that is very important for ongoing because a lot of partners often they want they are heartbroken by what they've discovered but also they want to know if it's going to happen again or not. And even though the person with compulsive sexual behavior can never really give a guarantee whether they're going to do it again or not, what they can say is definitely owning that what they've done is, is them, not their addiction. It's them. They've done this. And they're going to make some commitments to work on themselves so that they can not do it again. Hmm. Sounds like more choice available when you frame it like that, for sure. Yes, and with porn, I think a lot of partners getting very, very upset because they are also victims of misinformation about porn out there. Yeah. So a, a lot of partners believe that if somebody's watching actresses that are blonde and they happen to be brunette, oh, that must mean that he doesn't fancy mm. me because he prefer blonde. That's not true at all. Yeah. Because we know we know that what's in our fantasies is completely different from reality. And many people who are watching porn, they are watching porn, and they have they are not interested in translating that in, in their real life. Yeah, I really liked that point in your book, differentiating fantasy from desire, what you like to think about from what you actually want to happen. Mm -hmm. Yes, very interesting piece of research on fantasy. It's found that a lot of people who are watching porn 
and they're watching whatever they're watching on phone, they are often actually fantasizing about uh, doing it with their partners. Oh, there you go. So, so, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So people actually, as part of the research, it showed that people fantasize more about their partner than they fantasize about porn actors hmm. because they have a relationship with their partner. So they can, so it's easier to have a body felt sense of your partner compared to a porn actor that you never met. Yes. And your partner might feel nicer anyway, who knows? <laughs> yes, exactly. But I think a lot of partners are afraid of it because they, they see it as a big threat in the yeah. relationship or a big threat to, the, to themselves. And, and most of the time, it just really isn't. Mm. But that's also to do with misinformation, unfortunately. So we can't really blame the partners for being angry at people watching porn. But what, what everybody needs is, is more good information about what porn actually is and what it isn't. That's right. Yeah, it's entertainment. It's a wonderful, fun tool if used, yeah, in that way and not compulsively. And so lots of this information is in your wonderful book, Compulsive Sexual Behaviours, that I really enjoyed and I refer to a lot. And I understand you have a new book out. I have ordered it, but it hasn't arrived in my mailbox <laughs> yet. Silva, can you share a bit about what you're sharing next in this new book? I wanted to write this new book for one main reason, which is that basically what I've realized over the years is that almost nobody is trained in sexology. Mm. So if you trained as a doctor, if you trained as a, even a gynecologist, if you trained in, in, as a urologist, if you trained uh, as a nurse, or even like psychologist, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, there is literally no training in sexology. So what that means is that people, you know, doctors and, and psychiatrists and psychologists, they might work with patients really, really well, but they don't ask the questions about the sex life. Or they don't ask the questions about sexual pleasure or what is going on in the sexual area of their life. And a lot of patients are left really with, you know, good treatment, but not anything that to do with sex. And often the patients feel they can't even bring up the sex conversation because there's no invitation yeah. to do that. So a lot of people are left with, say, for example, you know, very good cancer treatment, but their sex life is destroyed and they have no help. They go to see a really, really nice psychotherapist for grief, for example, or anxiety. Mm. Fantastic, but their sex life is, is terrible and that stays unresolved. The reason for this is because it's over time so many clients have come to me and they said, I've had a really great therapist, but we've never talked about sex. Or I have uh, people that say, you know, I've had great things with my, you know, great treatment with my GP, but we never talked about sex. I've come to you because I want to address this. Yeah. And as a supervisor, I've had lots of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, from the medical background to the psychology background, where people were coming to me for a session in supervision to get some information about sexology because they don't have any. Oh, so I thought, right, okay, so maybe we need to write a book about it so that people can read and get all the information they need. Fantastic. And just, yeah, really empower healthcare professionals to feel brave enough to ask their clients because people want to talk about this. It's such an important part of people's life. But I guess if it's, you know, you mentioned cancer treatment, it's okay, we've got to get you alive. It seems like yeah. more important. But in the bigger picture, sexuality and sexual relationships are such a big part of staying well and feeling yeah. good about your life. That's right. Sexual health is one of the very big pillars of, of overall health. Mm. 
So it's really important that we don't ignore it, and it's often ignored. And I wrote that book with very simple language, so it means that everybody can read it, not just professionals. For people that are not professionals in terms of not working with people, but they have other professions or whatever, it is also a good book to bridge the gap of the lacking sex education. Because the other thing I hear all the time from everybody is that their sex education was not good, yeah. either non-existent or, or hardly anything was taught apart from avoiding diseases and avoiding pregnancy, yeah. that's kind of it. So it's also kind of there for everyone who wants to read out a bit about sex education. And the book is divided in different parts, parts on, on gender and gender diversity, sexual orientation diversity, how to understand eroticism, how to understand various sexual behaviors, and also there's a, a section on sexual funding so that people can actually understand the difference between consent and non-consensual behaviors. The, the last chapter is, is about overall health and why it's so important to maintain a good sexual health for our overall, overall health. Wow, it sounds wonderful. I can't wait till it arrives. If people are interested <laughs> in this new book or your previous publications, how might they find you? They can buy the books on with the Ratledge website. Wonderful. And the name of your newest publication, Silva? It's called Sexology the Basics. If anyone wants to talk to me, if they, if they have a question, they want to reach out to me, they can always go on my website and they can send me a message through that and I'll be very happy to, to respond. The website is silvanevers.co.uk. Beautiful. Silva, thank you so much for coming and talking on Evolution of Intimacy and for your passion and beautiful work in this field. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with Ella Shannon. We're feeling juicy the whole day. Every desire I could possibly think of. What sort of impact would it have? They want it, they're going to go and get it. They don't think of long-term consequences. Oh, did that feel really nice? Oh, yes, that felt really delicious. Being able to feel good about my body again, that's been a huge thing. All anybody really wants in this world is to feel seen and heard. We actually do have a lot that connects us physically. It's making people feel good. There is a real sense of hopefulness that returns in a relationship. A really beautiful thing. Take that beauty and that calmness and that bliss and that sense of peace out into the world. Thank you for listening and I hope we've inspired you with our juicy conversations on this episode of The Evolution of Intimacy. If you would like to go deeper, you can book a session of relationship counselling, sex therapy or individual counselling via my website. I work in person in Cairns, tropical far north Queensland, or I can meet you online anywhere in the world. Or you might prefer to go at your own pace with my 12-lesson relationship and intimacy online course. To book or to listen to previous episodes, visit my website, ellashannon.com, or follow me on the socials at Evolution of Intimacy. Finally, please go to iTunes and write me a quick review if you're feeling kind. Thank you, lovelies, and see you next time. This podcast was produced and recorded in the studios of Cairns FM 89.1.